It's at the letters for Thursday, February 22nd, 2024. Arden Swelling and Ben Nicholson-Smith. Our producers are Christian, Ryan, and Nick Andrade. Ben, a week into camp, only uh, a day or two away from the games that don't count. Only like, what, five weeks away from the games that do count. Everything is happening. <laughs> you sound pretty excited. Yeah, I mean, I think that it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here. But a quiet start to spring is not a bad thing for the Jays. Yeah, as you put it last week, spring training for everybody but the pitchers is just about avoiding bad outcomes. And uh, so far, no bad outcomes for the Blue Jays. Uh, This week at camp was kind of tone-setting week, I guess. Uh, Grand proclamation week, like framing the season week. Here's who we are and what we want to be about and what will happen if we're going to be successful. And look across 30 camps right now, there are managers coming out and saying things like John Schneider did about attention to detail and taking everything seriously and compete level and all this look like you know, every manager is going to step in front of like a, a phalanx of microphones and cameras this time of year. And people are going to say, what did you say to the team? What do you want your team to be? And the manager can't just go, I don't know, whatever, go do whatever the hell you want. (laughs) I don't care. Like he has to have a message. So they have to say something. But what did you make of, you know, what we've kind of heard from from John Schneider and even some of the kind of the the leaders uh, in the Blue Jays clubhouse to this point? Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, from my understanding of those conversations and those those meetings to set the tone, like we're probably going to spend more time talking about it right now than the actual meeting took, you know, lasted. Um, you know, it's probably a quick, quick message, very positive, And that's what you'd expect for a competitive team uh, with a lot of reasons to to try to set this thing in motion in a positive way. So for me, when I hear John Schneider and some of the players talking about uh, the hopes for this team in 2024, it all makes sense. Like they're saying exactly what I would expect them to. They're hopeful. They believe in this group. They think that good things can happen with this team. That's exactly what you'd expect. And at the same time, I think for everyone, whether it's even the players themselves, even the coaches themselves, everybody realizes, and of course the fans are, are top on this list, they have to actually prove it and do it for people to really believe them and trust them. And I think that's something that Bo Bichette nailed with his comments. Yeah, I liked Bo's comments a lot. Um, Some of the ones you referred to there. I liked his comments just about consistency and about how, like, look, I can, like, sit here and say anything right now on February 20th. But, I mean, what what is it going to mean in June or in July? Like, how are we going to back that up? I'm to bring my game to another level. I have to be that consistent presence, too, day in and day out and not have any sort of, you know, deep valleys or anything like that. And so that's the step that I want to take, but it doesn't start with the the results in the field. It starts with everything prior and the way that you handle yourself on a day-to-day basis. And so uh, that's a, that's really the priority for me this year. I incorporate- and that's really like the biggest question to me, right? Because like it's going to be easy for the Blue Jays to be refreshed and motivated and driven at this time of year. And it's going to be easy like early in April when they start playing games that count. And it's going to be easy in mid-April when they start playing home games. And 
it will be easy in some respects, like in September when it really matters and when there's only so many games left and you're like, we got to win this many to get in or to improve our standing or whatever you're playing for at that point. But I think that where some of that consistency and effort stuff really comes to play, like is in the middle of the season is in June and July when it gets kind of dog days ish and you're tired and you're bored and it's just like into sort of the rhythm and and the swing of things. Like that was the big thing I took away from, from Bo Bichette was just the desire to not be giving away played appearances and giving away games and to be bringing like consistent effort and intensity throughout the season in the middle of the season at times when you don't want to because that's what really good teams do yeah focus matters a ton and it is something that can impact the actual performance between the lines and in the course of a long season where you're going to be playing on nights you didn't get a ton of rest or when mentally you're just not as invigorated as you are on the first couple days of spring training that focus matters it almost reminds me and i'm not a gamer correct me if i'm wrong Arden. i don't get the sense that you're a big video game player either but um i you know this sort of reminds me of like playing a video game and the blue jays have like gotten to a certain level and then like crashed out and gotten to a certain level and crashed out and now it's like they're in the easy level again spring training it's like they're not the they can't obviously afford to mess up now but yeah of course this is the easy time they're not going to mess this up the real challenges are ahead when they face that tough level again they have to get through it yeah i think when they you know go to baltimore in may or june right or like when they go to fenway in july and it's those circumstances that you were referring to right like when it's you know you're tired you're beat up you've been carrying an injury it's like the third city on a 10 game road trip and it's a day game after a night game and it's like 35 degrees in baltimore maryland and you're you know you're just like passing out on your feet and you know there every fiber every inch of you like doesn't want to be there like wants to rest and recover and get home and sleep in your own bed and you know the the fire alarm at the hotel went off at four in the morning and uh you know your cornflakes are cold in the morning like whatever like all of the crap that's going to present itself through a big league season like can you persevere through that like can you show up on those days like can you not make an easy out like can you see five six pitches in a plate appearance as a pitcher like can you bring it and find that extra gear and like really hone in on command and conviction with your secondary stuff and with putting hitters away with two strikes like all these little micro things that'll happen throughout this ultra marathon of of a season i mean that's important because that game in july that game in the dog days of august that's worth just as much as the game on opening day it's worth just as much as the game down the stretch in september like those wins matter those stats go on the back of your baseball card just like all the rest of them so you know it's kind of like it's it's kind of cliche but like you, you you learn more about yourself on your bad days than you do on your good days because it's always easy on your good days to excel and to be feeling yourself and to be in a groove but when you're having a bad day when you're having kind of a a floor day rather than a ceiling day how do you show up and how well does it go I, i think that can be the difference and this is why these guys get paid the big bucks and this is why we watch them this it's really hard to do and they do it really well and this is this is the challenge that they face i mean i i think there's an aspect too of just managing yourself and we heard Chris Bassett last year talked about trying to manage his own 
workload and his own intensity levels as spring was ramping up. And there's a skill to that or an art to that. And I wonder if we're getting to the point, hopefully for the Blue Jays, they're getting to the point where Bo and Vlad and even Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen know when to use that energy and when not to. And maybe increasingly, you know, especially February 22nd as we record this, not the time to try to go and push yourself to the limit. And and maybe they can thread that needle that much better this year um, with one more year of experience because you are going to need that energy later and you probably don't need to be using it at max levels right now. Yeah, and the the vets always know more about that, obviously, because they've been through it so many times. Like you think about the the influence that Marcus Semyon was on this clubhouse when he was around, and you know Matt Chapman to an extent as well. Like the routines, the consistency, the fact that like every single day throughout the season, those guys would do the same thing. They would put in the same amount of effort, the same amount of work. They do the same pregame drills. They do the same postgame ice bath recovery decompress study video scouting reports what am i looking to accomplish the same swings in the cage like just no corners were cut and like that's something that i imagine justin turner will bring to the blue jays this year like this is a guy who does not take a plate appearance off and this is a guy who will make a pitcher earn the out because look justin turner is going to make an out like 65 percent of the time or something but the the pitcher is going to earn it and they are going to throw a bunch of pitches and turner is going to spoil a bunch of pitches one of the better guys in baseball getting his bat to balls all around the zone and even outside of the zone as well like i think that that's kind of the mentality those are some of the the soft skills maybe or the intangibles that can add up over the course of a season and just from hearing you know bobachette talk about wanting to take his physical routines more more seriously this year and want to be more disciplined in what he eats and how he recovers and how he trains and just his focus on a day-to-day basis through the course of a season it, it sounds like someone like Bo, and i imagine this, this is the case for someone like vlad too as these guys become 25 26 start to have had quite a few years in this league to learn those from from those experiences it sounds like something that that they're starting to come around to yeah, and players in their prime, you know, this is a chance for them to set themselves up for their careers. If they have a couple of good seasons right now, obviously the team is front and center now too. These guys want to produce and want to win. And so that's a that's a big deal. And I think like, yeah, you know, to your point about a guy like Marcus Simeon, and I think Bo is, you know, clearly has spoken very highly about him and how close they were and how much he learned from him. You know, Simeon is, is wired in a different way and his preparation and effort level if you talk to people around the game, just off the charts, like truly, truly off the charts. But I do think, too, there's room for guys like a Brandon Belt where, like, you know, I'm not going to put him and Marcus Simeon in the same breath when it comes to preparation. I'm just not. And But but Belt, it worked for him, you know? Like, maybe he's a show-and-go guy. Maybe he's a guy who doesn't need early BP five days a week. Or sometimes he shows up a little bit later and kind of walks in and goes one for three with a double and a walk. And, you know, that too is a product of his experience. And I'm not saying it's cutting corners. That's definitely not how I would frame that. But Brandon Belt knows how much he needs to do. And as the Blue Jays become more of a veteran team, they have more guys in that room who have a better sense of who they are. And when, you know what, maybe it's that 35-degree game in Baltimore and you're on day 10 of a road trip, maybe you actually just show up at 11.30 for a 1 p.m. start, and maybe that's good enough. Yeah, you do see oftentimes on those road trips, uh, BP is not something that happens on the weekends. And, yeah. uh, you know, I don't think that's for, like, 
a lack of togetherness or a lack of wanting to do hard work. I think that's just for giving players the option to be professionals and be adults and to know what they need to do. And for some players, like, yeah, the best thing is honestly to get a bit more sleep and to like maybe not push themselves so much pregame as they have been. Whereas for others, it's actually going to make a lot of sense to get there early, which they'll have the option of doing, and get into the cages with Hunter Mentz or with Guillermo Martinez and to face velocity off of a pitching machine or to go over some video with Don Mattingly or what have you. Like you know, People get these like weird ideas about coaching at the highest levels of sport where it's there's these disciplinarians who are you know yelling and screaming and marching around and saying, we're going to do things exactly yeah. this way and this it's is the structure. Football. Yeah, it's well, it's just I, it's just not that at this level of, of sport, <laughs> like it's just not that, you know, it's these players are professionals. They have a really good idea of what makes them good and what they need to prepare. And it's much more so the player going to the coach and saying, hey, can we work on this? Like, hey, I felt that last night. Can we do that? Hey, can you set up the machine for me to do this? Hey, what are your ideas on that? It's not the coach coming in and saying you're going to do this everyone's going to do this we do everything the same way it's my way or the highway shut up and do it because that's just not the best way to get individuals to perform at their highest right yeah and you think you know don mattingly jay's offensive coordinator first one in franchise history that is very very different than you know being the offensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Rams like it's just it's very different it is it is much more bottom up you know with Mattingly I think he has the authority now to go to players and have more of a dialogue a true conversation with these guys uh, which could be good but in so many cases like you say it's someone saying hey I, I want to hit off this machine do you want to can we can we meet at 2 30 tomorrow and do that and then the coach inevitably makes it happen and you know you see what happens on the field yeah, there's a great um, video on the Red Sox YouTube channel right now. The Red Sox put out like all kinds of great behind the scenes stuff, I guess, because they got like Netflix following them around all spring. So they've got all this content and it's just Jaron Duran like going through his day and he goes in to the uh, the batting cages at their spring facility and like encounters a hitting coach. And um, he says to the hitting coach, like, what, what are we doing today? And the hitting coach says to him, well, what do you want to do today? Like, yep. what, what are you feeling? Like, what do you want to work on? And Duran has to kind of think about it. And he goes, oh, well, actually, you know, I haven't really done, like, you know, lefty offset recently. And, you know, that's something that I was thinking about. Like, maybe we can work on that. Like, it's just, that's just going to be such more productive work when it's, like, coming from the player. And when it's, like, the player saying this is something that, you know, it's the self-determination theory of it all, right? Like, it's the when the player has autonomy to kind of pursue their own mastery in this, um, you know, when they feel like they are driving the process, like, I think that, you know, that's just, that's just how you get the best out of athletes at the highest level, because all these guys got here for a reason. Like all of these guys have been through, um, you know, level after level after level of really high baseball and learned themselves to a really, um, you know, intricate degree. Like Bo Bichette knows exactly what he needs to do on a daily basis like he does not need Don Mattingly to come in and, and be an authoritarian <laughs> with him no that would in fact be it's almost with those two personalities too it is just like the it's almost impossible to imagine like because Don Mattingly is very chill he's very very respectful um you know even with all of his experience and yeah Bobochet knows you know today he wants to hit fastballs in the inner third of the plate and that's what he needs to do and he doesn't need anyone else to tell him that no 
And that is about as soft as the science is ever going to get on at the letters. So uh, I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, let's talk about some more concrete matters, uh, such as a couple of minor league free agents that the Blue Jays recently agreed to terms with and invited to spring training, one of them being Eduardo Escobar, switch hitting uh, third baseman, second baseman, uh, most recently with the New York Mets and Los Angeles Angels, a guy who has had some power throughout his career a guy who is uh revered as a really strong clubhouse presence um if if you're watching videos like go look up uh eduardo escobar's like mic'd up stuff from when he was on the apple tv games he is no joke hilarious like he is a riot he is just seems like a really fun guy to have around i'm looking forward to to meeting him in dunedin so he, he is now in camp with the blue jays and then daniel vogelbach as well for what is uh officially his second stint with the blue jays uh somebody who any baseball fan will be familiar with via wow like that lad is an absolute unit anytime yep. that you have ever seen him on a baseball diamond uh you know he is definitely a presence and uh has a ton of pop and uh is very useful in uh some very specific situations uh what does it say ben that these players have been brought into camp by the blue jays uh and do you see legitimate paths to the big league roster for either of them super interesting yeah, I, I find both these deals actually really interesting. I think that to answer your question, yes, there are paths for both. In my opinion, Daniel Vogelback, that is a big league player. That is a guy who can help a big league team win baseball games against really good pitchers. Vogelback gets under one to deep right. Back goes Garcia, back at the wall. It's out of here. Daniel Vogelback strikes again his 13th home run. And so, you know, is he going to be a big, you know, leading part of this offense? Of course not. If he's on this team, it's as the 25th or 26th man on the roster. And that's fine because someone has to take that role. And, you know, if if it's Spencer Horwitz, all right, you know, that's someone who came up and, and had a reasonably good showing in 2023. A really good story. We'll see what he can do in 2024. But at the same time with Vogelback, you can now option Horowitz to AAA, and you can have someone who plays very specific roles, which we can get into. Um, so, you know, yeah, there's lots of kind of granular stuff to get into here. Um, but big picture, I do think that these guys have real shots to make the team. And of the two, I think Vogelback, really, really interesting. And I think for him, he should be on this team. I think he can make this team a lot better right out of the gate and, and see what happens. So let's stay on Vogelbach because we're here. Um, and I agree with you. He is a big league bat. Like you look at some of the uh, peripherals for him and underlying stuff for him uh, in 2023. And like he had like a super unsatisfying season, I'm sure. Um, you know, he, he had his slumps and, uh, you know, he wasn't quite like what he had been in the past. But you look at like. The walk rates and the strike zone management, the chase rates, the hard hit rates. I mean, all of that stuff is super, super sound. Um, and I think that it is entirely within the realm that Daniel Vogelbach plays for some big league team this year and gets like 
300 plate appearances and puts up a 110 weighted runs created plus and hits like maybe even 15 homers in uh in that half a season's worth of plate appearances i just don't know that that fit is the blue jays really well because as you said like the utility the way you can deploy him it's so narrow like it's so specific only against lefties yep can't play him in the field can barely run the bases don't want him on the bases right so we are talking about like strictly a platoon dh bench bat yeah and yeah i think that's like an interesting luxury to have on certain teams with certain roster constructions but when i'm looking at a team that is already employing a 39 year old whose primary position is dh a 34 year old right fielder who last year had a dh day once a week and may need more this year and then a first baseman who over the last couple of years really but last year especially was dealing with like all kinds of sort of physical ailments that limited him and sort of you some some workload concerns there and probably some reason to wonder if he could use some additional dh time just to keep himself fresher and be a bit more productive offensively i don't know if you can fit in like a platoon dh bench bat on that roster when you have so much other dh playing time being taken up and when you are needing your bench to just be to just have more utility and more versatility in terms of the deployment yeah so totally agree with you that vogelback has limited use like and and i think that that is just abundantly clear from how the mets used him they barely let him face lefties they didn't let him play the field Everyone agrees this guy's a bat-only player. And that's to me, that's fine even on a team that has the roster construction that you just described there. And it would stop being fine if Justin Turner could never play third base or could never play the field. But if Justin Turner can even play once or twice a week at third base, would be the most likely option on this team. And let's say he's doing that against a left-handed pitcher and or excuse me, against a right-handed pitcher. He's playing third base against a righty, and then Vogelback's your DH against a righty, and then he Vogelback is starting a couple times. Obviously, you sub him out if a lefty comes in because uh, you don't want him facing lefty on lefty. And then in addition, you could also use Vogelback in pinch-hitting situations. So if he's starting once or twice a week on those days that you have a Justin Turner in the field or Justin Turner's getting a day off, then that allows you to take advantage of him and select matchups and give this lineup a little bit of extra thump. And, you know, to me, it it almost gets to like a philosophical question of like what the bench is for. And if the bench is there to be kind of reserves, like backups in a sense, guys who could play five or six days a week, that's not who this is. That's not Daniel Vogelback. But if he's someone to be that last guy on the roster who is more of a role player, who in very specific situations can help the team, I actually think that he's actually totally worthy of that last spot on a bench. I, I don't think that's this is that roster. Like last year, you had Matt Chapman, who was an everyday player at third base. You had Whit Merrifield, who essentially was an everyday player, certainly over the first like four months of the season. Um, and those guys have been replaced by Isaiah Kiner, Falefa, and Davis Schneider, essentially. And are those going to be everyday players for you? 
Like, do you want Isaiah Kiner-Falefa playing every single day? Do you want Davis Schneider in there every single day, even nope. against tough righties? Exactly. So that that's where it gets difficult with Vogelback not being able to play a position and with there being some serious question marks about how often Justin Turner can play third base, um, you know, once a week, twice a week, maybe. I'm not yeah. looking for more than that no, no, from him. No. So the rest of that time's got to be Kiner-Falefa or it's got to be Schneider. Um, Espinal, the, maybe. Maybe. Um, the other thing is like Kevin Kiermeyer, how often you start in him against lefties? Because if you're not, then Dalton Varsho is shifting over to center and now you're running IKF or Schneider out to left, I guess. Yep. And th- th- that compromises you further and just like how much flexibility you have. And I mean, this now we're going to have to start asking some real questions about your defense if you're running out defensive lineups where it's like Justin Turner at third base and David Schneider in left field with Chris Bassett on the mound I don't know if I love that defensively behind uh, certain pitchers who you know maybe don't strike everybody in the world out so I just think that Vogelbach on this particular roster is just is just too limiting in what the Blue Jays would be able to do and the the variety of lineups they'd be able to deploy I think when you look at just how the Jays have used that 26th player on the roster, they've barely used him. And you made the point, I want to say it was last week or maybe the week before, that you know you look back at how they've actually used these players, and it's been so, so limited. So I think they're going to get most, the vast, vast majority of the playing time on this roster is going to come from the first 12 position players. And really, it's going to be the first you know, probably the first 11 position players uh, on this roster because even Espinal might not end up playing a ton. Or David Schneider, if he breaks camp, might not play a ton for this team. It might be more, in Schneider's case, against lefties. Um, but you you want to have someone who can just help you in really specific situations. This is why I don't even mind a speed guy late in the season or in the playoffs. I love a speed guy where in very, very specific must-win situations, Cam Eden on the playoff roster, love that. To me, that's a great use of the spot. And it's almost similar here with Fogelback, where, again, if you run into a situation where Justin Turner breaks camp and he can't play third base at all for whatever reason, then maybe the discussion shifts because you can't have two pure DHs on the team. But at, at this point right now, as things stand, we are led to believe that Justin Turner can play a little bit of defense, maybe once or twice a week. And if that's the case, I think there's room for a masher like Vogelback who can give you that 110, 115 WRC plus and run into some, change the game with his power in a way that, because here's the other thing, if you're not taking Vogelback, who's the guy that you would advocate for in that spot? Either Nathan Lucas or Ernie Clement. And you think those guys would help you more? I understand those are not sexy names. <laughs> I understand that nobody uh, is, you know, rushing out to buy their jerseys. Uh, Probably not. No, but not that anybody should buy Daniel Vogelbach's jersey either because, uh, you know, he might be DFA'd midseason if he makes yep. this club. Uh, Could be although, mid-May. Could be mid-April. Yep. Um, although, I mean, the Blue Jays will be in for $2 million on him um, yep. if he earns his roster. So, uh, you know, that's more than uh, your boy Ahmed Rosario is going to be making this year. Uh, so it's, <laughs> My, it's not nothing. Let's, yeah, let's, I'll, I'll leave that there. But yeah, <laughs> so, It's an amazing deal for the Rays. I'll just say that. Uh, well, here, here's the thing. Like, the Rays are going to use him so optimally, right? Like, yes. he's a perfect Rays piece because they're going to get the best out of him. Um, and they're going to get such great return on like such a minimal investment. Yes. But I also, <laughs> the other thing is that the value on the deal 
does run a bit counter to like how strong a player you suggest that Ahmed Rosario is. Well, we'll see. I mean, do you think IKF is worth 10 times more? And I don't even think the IKF deal is bad. I think my point is, like, why did 29 other teams not offer Ahmed Rosario $2 million? Because some players get frozen out. And some players late in the winter end up being way better bargains. I don't think it's necessarily, like, look, yeah, IKF versus Rosario, I don't think there's a huge difference in pure talent there. And at the same time, too, like, you could say that about you know, Matt Chapman, who's probably going to get less than he quote unquote should this offseason. Does that mean that his talent is any less? Uh, You know, I would say it doesn't. I'll leave it there. I'll spare you (laughs) any more Rosario talk. Speaking of, you know, utility infielders who may or may not be useful, Eduardo Escobar is a (laughs) Toronto Blue Jay for now. He's in camp. Uh, We touched on him like a little bit earlier. And the thing that I would like usually do with a player like this is say, okay, look, I know that like the results last year look a little bit salty on the Fangraphs page, but look at the underlying stuff. Look at the peripherals. Yeah, I can't even do that with him. Like, I mean, just there, you know, you look at the eggs of Elos, the barrel rates, the strikeout rates, the whiff rates, like none of it paints a rosy picture. Like this is just a guy who had um, a really poor season all around. And the bet for the Blue Jays is that, hey, he was banged up and, you know, there's some stuff going on and it was just a blip. And, you know, he can be the guy who he was earlier in his career one more time. I don't know. He's also 35. So we'll see. What's the pathway for Escobar to the big league club? Because you did mention that you could see a pathway for him because it is a rather crowded infield picture for the Blue Jays right now. Yeah, it is. And and Clement, too, being out of options complicates that. Um, I really do think there is a pathway for Escobar. And I don't think he would have been signed to this deal if there wasn't some sort of pathway but at the same time, man, I, I really agree with you. And, you know, when I look at his numbers, there's not a lot there that I'm seeing that kind of says, oh, but this guy deserves more of a chance or the 613 OPS that he had last year was not reflective of, of his talent. It seems like it is. And also, he's not getting younger. He's getting older. So if anything, you're not necessarily going to expect that this trend line in the course of the next 24 months is going to move in a positive direction for Eduardo Escobar. And again, you know, seems like a, you know, fun guy to have around. He's obviously had a really good major league career. But at this moment in time, as I look at things, I think he needs to prove a lot. He needs to prove that the skills underlying performance from last year were somehow not representative and he can do more. And so this is a guy, in my opinion, who has a pathway to winning a job on this team But it's not his job to lose. I don't think it should be his job to lose. And to some extent, I think he's probably there as injury insurance um, where, you know, if someone ends up pulling a calf muscle, then you can turn to Escobar. He's done it at the big league level and he can give you some degree of competency there. But going into this, I think that the, the, the pathway should be uphill because when I look at these numbers, I don't see a guy who has done enough to earn a job, a guaranteed job on a contending team. And just with the 40 man picture right now, like in that at those positions, when you think about like Biggio and Schneider and Isaiah Kiner Falefa and Clement and Santiago Espinal, and then the guys who have yet to make the big league debuts, like your Elvis Martinez and Addison Barger, Leo Jimenez, like 
these are all guys on the 40 man. The Blue Jays, in order to add Escobar, are going to need some sort of 40 man condensing move. Like there's going to have to be some sort of trade or somebody's getting DFA'd. Um, it's kind of similar with Vogelbach, right? Like, how are you getting him onto the 40 at this point without sacrificing somebody that you like? Um, you know, I'd, like, I I think that Nathan Lucas is a useful player. And I think that the Blue Jays' outfield depth in terms of people who can actually play the outfield is pretty thin right now. You know, I don't know how much we consider like Davis Schneider or Isaiah Kiner-Falefa as outfielders. So I think that like having Nathan Lucas as a capable outfielder is somewhat important. Um, You know, Ernie Clement, sure, out of options, you know, came off of well, no, he didn't come off waivers last year. He was released by the Athletics and the Blue Jays signed him towards the end of camp. I mean, yeah, you could you could make a case that he could come off the 40, but like you're looking at a pretty, you know, some uncomfortable 40-man decisions, I think, if you're trying to get Vogelbach and Escobar in there. So, you know, if there's a trade, if there's an injury, if, uh, you know, Justin Turner, like, strains an oblique at the end of camp, like, that obviously changes the calculus. But just the way the Blue Jays are set up right now and probably also wanting to, like, preserve some flexibility for the end of camp when your Ernie Clements of this world and Jordan Luplos of this world hit waivers or, you know, get released and when somebody who might be a better fit could become available, like, just wanting to be nimble for those opportunities, it's just kind of hard for me to fit these guys in the 40 at this time. I think right now it does look pretty full. I think by the time opening day comes around and you have to actually make that roster move, you can do it. Is it Zulueta? Is it Wes Parsons? I mean, if, if Wes Parsons had to be DFA'd, the world would keep spinning, um, you know, with all due respect to Wes Parsons. Um, you know, so there are ways that they could do this if Escobar shows that he deserves to be on a major league roster. And, and he has a lot of work to do. Like, to me, if Daniel Vogelback comes into spring training, hits 200 with three homers and is healthy, I think he's on the team. If Escobar comes in and he hits 200 and doesn't show a lot of power, I don't think he should be on the team. I don't think that, you know, unless he's barreling everything into the gap, whatever. But I think that if he's not making good contact consistently against really good pitching, I, I don't think you need to force him onto the roster. And so um, we'll see how it unfolds. But injuries, we talk about this all the time. It, it will have a way of working itself out. Oh, 100%. And I, I just, I feel like even the, what, 30 to 35 plate appearances that these guys might get in spring probably isn't enough to really show you much of anything, honestly. Yeah. Remember Greg Bird? Like, dude, oh, yeah. tore it up. 2022 spring training barreled everything he was like strikeout to walk um we all had him on the team right that was the year the blue jays had 28 spots in april because of the pandemic so it's like of course this guy's gonna be on the team they're so right-handed heavy of course they're gonna bring this guy as as a lefty bench bat well lo and behold blue jays are like yeah we don't we can't fit you on our 40 and we don't want to put you on our 40. And when they told Greg Bird that he jumped back to the Yankees on a minor league deal, exercised his opt out and went elsewhere for a better opportunity. And like Q histrionics, like people were apoplectic about it and melting down. And how could you let this happen? He was so good in the spring. Didn't you see what he just did? He went back to the Yankees. What are you thinking? The Yankees of all teams, well, he was Greg Bird never made it back to the big leagues. He was released midseason. Last year, he was playing indie ball in Quebec. Right now, he's playing in Australia. Like, I just think that 
things are more likely trending in that direction with uh, some of the minor league free agent invitees than in the direction of, you know, either of these guys are going to be someone that is, uh, you know, that we're talking about in May as, uh, you know, key pieces of this of this lineup. Yeah, I am totally with you on Escobar and on on Vogelback. I, I think he's on this team in May. I think he's hitting some bombs. And maybe it's, you know, late in the game. You've got, you know, Espinal starts the game against a lefty. Then you bring in a righty, a tough right-handed reliever. You're, you're facing Brian Abreu of the Astros. And then, boom, Vogelbach hits a three-run bomb. Like, that's the kind of impact he can have. So we'll see. Um, he's he's got to he's got to stay healthy. He's got to show something in in camp here. But and look, we're talking about role players here. Everything we've said, you know, as far as it starts with Bo and Vlad and Springer, all that stuff still holds up. But as far as role players go, I like this as a role player pickup for the Jays. I like this from an entertainment perspective as well. Yes, and uh, <laughs> an enjoyment uh, perspective and a fun ball players to watch perspective because uh, Vogelbach is certainly that, and uh, Escobar's personality is just uh, amazing and great to have around. So, uh, you know, rooting for for both of them to have healthy and productive springs and to land big league jobs somewhere if not in toronto let's step away but when we come back plenty more blue jays spring training storylines to tidy up as we continue on at the letters listen to at the letters ad free on amazon music included with prime It continues on at the letters Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson, Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. And uh, Ben, the free agent market may be moving for utility infield types such as Ahmed Rosario and Gio Urshela and Tim Anderson, uh, but is not moving at the top of the market. When we were talking about the Blake Snells, the Jordan Montgomery's, the Matt Chapman's, the Cody Bellinger's. We are five weeks from opening day, something like that. And uh, four players are going into the offseason. Many were predicting to garner nine-figure deals are still available. And their markets seem to be rather stagnant at this time. What do you make of it? Is this a crisis for baseball? Is this just Scott Boris doing what Scott Boris has done many, many times before? Do we need a free agent deadline? Um, what What is going on with all this, Ben? You know, it's I find it really interesting as someone who's who's tracked free agency and written about free agency for a long time now. And I think that I wouldn't say it's a crisis. We've seen stuff like this before, right? I'm sure a lot of people remember the free agent camp uh, for for unsigned players that happened a few years back. You know, Scott Boris regularly takes his clients deep into spring training. I don't think it's good for the game, but I also think that Rob Manfred and the owners are more motivated by concrete numbers and revenues than they are storylines. And this is not a great look for baseball. We heard Justin Turner's comments, as uh, as Shai Davidi wrote about at Sportsnet.ca recently, that it's a black eye on the game. And, and I do agree with that sentiment. But ultimately, if it doesn't result in a change in ticket sales, if it doesn't result in a change in, in TV revenues, I'm not sure that Major League Baseball is going to be super, super motivated to make a change here. And of course, it takes two. And the Players Association, I think, doesn't want to have a deadline because that would take away some of the leverage that these players have earned 
by playing six years in Major League Baseball. So I don't think either side is necessarily all that motivated to change this. I don't think anyone likes it. I don't like it. It's not fun. Um, And at a certain point, collectively, we all just want to turn the page toward the game on the field. And I love the offseason probably as much as anyone. I love the hot stove. It's a really fun time of year. Um, You know, but at the same time, we love the game because of what happens between the lines. And I think that it gets a little stale at this point. You know, I want to hear your thoughts on that first, I guess, before we sort of cast ahead on these players. Well, yeah, black eye was a bit strong for me, but I do think it's a bad look. Uh, I have zero solutions to this issue. I don't want there to be a deadline for free agent signings or a free agent signing period. I think that would be really bad for players, and I think they have no reason to ever agree to that. So, yeah. like to me, it's just unrealistic. So I don't even consider it. Like it's just that's just fantasy land. I think. Some of this is just like the Scott Boris playbook that we've seen him run time and time again before. And when you sign up to be a Scott Boris client, like you kind of understand that this is something that might happen. Like, you know, like, hey, I might be unemployed into spring training. I mean, Um, they're the ones paying him, right? They're choosing this. Oh, yeah. No, and you can instruct scott boris to do something differently like jose altuve instructed scott boris to get him uh you know a below market extension with the houston astros right like they're not victims of this no yeah hunjin ryu instructed scott boris to like i'm a deal in korea you know like so like matt chapman could instruct scott boris to do something differently so clearly these players understood that there would be a point in their free agencies where they might have to get a bit uncomfortable um and you know that and like it's pretty clear what the playbook is right like boris just is gonna wait for a team to blink for some owner to get panicky and to say whatever just pay them like just get this guy in camp help me sell some of these tickets uh you know let's just improve our win expectancy like i don't care forget all of your discipline and your valuations you nerds just get me the bright shiny object or He's waiting for like a Reese Hoskins situation. Somebody blows out an ACL or, uh, you know, Kodai Senga is going to start exactly. the year on the IL. And now all of a sudden uh, the Mets and Steve Cohen are thinking, hmm, like we spend a ton of money. Uh, maybe we bring in a Blake Snell to replace the production we were expecting from Kodai Senga. But I also think that like the circumstances are kind of unique as well in that like a lot of teams that would typically spend or would typically like engage in this market are sidelined for various reasons like the nationals are rebuilding um the white Sox as well there are teams that are spooked by their uh regional sports network instability like the rangers and the padres who are slashing payroll dramatically there are teams with like some very real luxury tax implications you know the Mets would be one of them um the Astros would be another one the Yankees are in a position where like if they sign a Blake Snell they're paying like a 110 percent tax on that you're starting to bump up against thresholds where your draft pick is getting knocked back 10 slots on top of the pick that you would lose by signing somebody who has a qualifying offer attached to them so you know i think the blue jays are kind of on the periphery of that group that could have you know some luxury tax implications that could be getting in the way of them being involved in this market so i do think there are some unique circumstances here on top of this just being the traditional Boris playbook. Yeah, there there are. And 
and those are all real. I think at the same time, every year, there's some teams that are rebuilding. There's some teams that are up against the CBT. There's some teams that, that find, you know, are they reasons? Are they excuses? Probably depends on whether you're talking to players or owners. But, you know, there are explanations for why certain teams aren't involved in the market. But end of the day, this is a bigger number of pretty prominent clients than usual that we would see at this time of year. I mean, it's it's still February. And so there's still plenty of time for these guys to do a full ramp up. But, you know, that's five pretty prominent Boris clients if you toss in J.D. Martinez, um, who can make a real impact. And, you know, this is why owners push for the CBT and when they're when they're bargaining collectively is because, you know, you look at a team like the Mets, which on paper, you know, the Mets, if you just talk about this through the lens of baseball, like, come on, get it together, sign Jordan Montgomery or, or Blake Snell, just do it. Because you look at their rotation now, it's Quintana, Severino, Sean Manaya, Adrian Hauser, and Tyler McGill. Like, you can do a lot better than that. They have a good lineup. They're not the, the Lehigh Valley Mets or the Syracuse Mets. They're the New York Mets. They should do it from a baseball standpoint. And that's the perspective that the PA is always going to take. But at the same time, you can see under the rules that have been created jointly by the players and owners, you can see the case that when you talk about the cost in draft picks and the cost in taxes, organizationally, David Stearns might look at this and say, it's actually not the best move for us to go and spend crazy money on someone like a Blake Snell because it is going to have bigger organizational ramifications down the road. So again, this is why owners push for this CBT um, and it's up to Scott Boris now to kind of finesse that, find the weak spots in this market and identify opportunities for his clients. Well, and those penalties, those taxes only increase each year subsequently that you are a taxpayer, right? Like that's one of the reasons why I think you're seeing the Padres try to duck back under it. That's why you saw the Dodgers try to duck back under it in recent years, right? You kind of want to reset those penalties if you have the opportunity to, and the Mets are like nowhere close to resetting those those penalties. But the Mets are also in a position where, you know, they're looking at an MLB landscape right now where you've got an extra postseason team in each league, and you're coming off a season where you saw the 90-win Rangers defeat the 84-win Diamondbacks in the World Series. Yeah. And you're saying the bar has been lowered to get into the tournament at the end of the year that this is all ostensibly about do we project to win 89 90 91 games yeah that's good enough like do we need to go get a Blake Snell to push our projection up to like 94 or 95 I mean yeah it'd be nice but we're probably pretty good right now to get into the postseason and once you're in the postseason Anything can happen. Uh, we have seen time and again, like teams with very unimpressive regular seasons go on runs in October. So I, I think that that is, is part of the calculus for a lot of teams as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, creates a whole different dynamic compared to what it was before the expanded playoffs here. Um, I still think these guys are going to do pretty well. Um, and I still see the Cubs landing either Chapman or Bellinger. I could see, I know I've seen Farhan Zaidi's comments. I, I understand that, you know, he's he's said that essentially the, the Giants are like their team that they have right now. Um, at a certain point, he says it would be harder to add to the, to the Major League roster. I still think that that team um, in that division needs to do something more. I don't think the Giants have had a very good offseason. Um, and I think that there's there's a case for them to add another bat, another everyday player to that lineup. 
and so you know i think that that there's probably one free agent that can go there i look at the angels as a team that could sign snell or montgomery so i still think there are going to be opportunities for these guys but someone might end up taking more of a short-term deal i think probably three of the four because jd martinez obviously will sign for one year but i think three of the four boris guys probably end up getting long-term deals um you know, maybe maybe less than what their their max um, valuation could have been, but still at pretty substantial numbers. Well, and that's what these players understand when you kind of run this gambit is that, look, the fallback is the one year high AV pillow contract or the Correa deal, you know, three years with opt outs or that's kind of the fallback. If you're not getting your six or seven year packed, you are getting at least something short term high AV. Hopefully you stay healthy and productive and you can reenter more favorable market conditions with uh, more bidders and do better next time and you know maybe you make up your six or seven year long-term guarantee in kind of installments of two years here and three years there um and maybe with inflation you actually end up making more it just puts more pressure on you to continue to stay healthy and perform um i think the other precarious thing about this scenario is that they all have the same agent so it's hard to create a market it's hard to create competition when like a chapman and bellinger are both represented by the same dude and it appears that there are only two really legitimate bidders in that market in the giants and cubs like you said like maybe the angels sneak in maybe some you know we saw the twins sign carlos correa right so surprises are possible but just based off of the evidence that we have right now it seems like the giants and cubs are really the two bidders for bellinger and chapman so like as soon as Boris places one player in one situation, well, there goes one of the competitors for the services. Yeah. Like there goes leverage, you know, like, and now all of a sudden, like, why would the other team, like say it's the Cubs resign Bellinger. Well, now why are the giants going to go above and beyond for Chapman knowing that the Cubs are now out of that market and there's yeah. really no one else that they're competing against. Yeah. It's an interesting stalemate uh, in the position player side. It seemed like, you know, I saw someone float that the Mariners could be a team to look at there. We'll see. I mean, I think with the Jays, I don't think the Jays are are in on these guys. Um, I, I really don't. Just, you know, obviously this is a Blue Jays podcast. So to share my opinion there, I don't expect that that will happen. But I do think from a Jays standpoint, they should be really scared of the Yankees signing Snell. And I don't know if that's going to happen. There's been a little bit of conversation there, a little bit of buzz there. But the Yankees should do it. I mean, if the Yankees had Snell, I, I've been spending a lot of time um, kind of in preparation for the season, looking at some of the depth charts in the American League to really understand, you know, what's actually happened this offseason and what teams look really good on paper at this point. And the more I look at the Yankees, the more I like them. I think the Yankees are a really good team. And, uh, you know, the, the more I look at Baltimore, actually, I, I, have, I have a lot of questions about Baltimore. So, you know, we'll see. But the Yankees are really good. And if they went out there and, you know, you bump Clark Schmidt from your number five spot, to swing roll, bullpen, option, whatever, you have Blake Snell in that rotation, all of a sudden that is a powerhouse team for 2024. So the Yankees should do that. And if I was the Jays, I would be very scared of seeing an MLB trade rumors push notification pop up on your phone that the Yankees just went out and got Snell. Yeah, it depends on what you're getting from Rodon. Like he's just such a wild card. But Apparently he looks really good in spring. Yeah, 
we, we've heard a lot of things like that at this time of year, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, but you know, Garrett Cole's Garrett Cole. And I think Marcus Stroman is going to give them like 180 innings of, uh, you know, high three, low four ZRA. Yep. I think he's lined up to, uh, to start their home opener against the Jays, by the way, uh, <laughs> wicked. The pitch bars strikes out. Good high slider right there from Marcus Stroman. Cannot wait. Get your popcorn now. Um, but yeah, no, you're right. Like if they add a Snell there, um, yeah, they'd be looking a lot better. But also, I mean, Snell's got some pretty big question marks as well. Like that's kind of the thing with some of these free agents. Like the red flags on them are rather red. You know, when you look at like Snell's career history and his durability, the amount of batters that he walks. I mean, you look at the fact that like Jordan Montgomery's had one good season um you look at you know matt chapman and the way that his season went from uh you know the middle of may on last year and then you look at like some of the bad ball stuff with cody bellinger and you're kind of like man how did you get these results in 2023 when this is the quality of contact that you were making and oh by the way we like have the residue of 2021 and 2022 when you were like borderline unplayable and got non-tendered by the los angeles dodgers so like that's the thing as well is that like on the free agent market like you never get a slam dunk like you never get a sure thing you're always dealing with like a veteran player with question marks but i do think that the question marks with these players are rather substantial they are they are um, there's no question about that. I think at the same time, you know, if you are really intent on winning a championship and you're the New York Yankees, who has more upside and who has more question marks, Clark Schmidt or Blake Snell? You know, like I think I'd take Blake Snell out of those two. And same, you know, if you're the Giants and you're trying to, you know, really, really competitive division, do you want Wilmer Flores to be your third baseman or is he maybe better suited in a part time bench complementary role? And you have Matt Chapman as your third baseman, right? Like uh, to me, yes, they have questions. None of them are going to, you know, they'll all decline. All baseball players decline eventually. But in the meantime, you have really good players on on teams that do have a little bit of money to spend. You know, this is where I, I look at these teams, and I, I just think there there still are some clubs that could really really benefit from from adding those players. Signing starting pitchers in free agency uh, is fraught business. It is not something you want to find yourself doing very often. It is something the Blue Jays have done rather often lately uh, to varying degrees of success. There are the Tanner Roarks and Jaime Garcias of this world. There are also the Kevin Gosmans and Chris Bassett's of this world on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, Robbie Ray, where things go really, really well. And then there's Hunjin Ryu who perhaps falls somewhere in the middle of those two poles. His Blue Jays tenure is over. He's going back to Korea on a rather lucrative deal in the context of KBO. Congratulations to him. Seems like a great way for him to finish what has been a long and storied career in professional baseball. He started in KBO. Now he'll get to kind of bookend his career, finishing things off in KBO. Um, But yeah, his Blue Jays tenure is over. What do you think is kind of the lasting legacy of Hunjin Ryu with the Toronto Blue Jays? Battle here from Aaron Hicks, but it is won by Ryu. A changeup to get him, and he sets down the Yankees in order in the top of the first. Hunjin Ryu. It's a really interesting tenure. Um, four years. Uh, of course, he had the one COVID year where he was a Cy Young finalist. He was really, really good that year. Um, that was a, a season that, of course, you sign a free agent player, it's really the first couple of years you're hoping to get that peak, peak performance. And that was cut short. 
due to COVID, no one's fault. Um, Ryu did what he could, and he really helped the Jays that year. He had an excellent season. After that, they had a down year in 21. Then TJ helped them late last year. I, I think when you look at the totality of it, it's a five-war player for 80 million bucks. That's quite a steep price tag. So, you know, <laughs> you're doing a dollar per war calculation here. Probably not um, gonna gonna jump to the top of the spreadsheet right there um, because yeah, that's that's pretty expensive for for five war. I think at the same time, the thing I'll say here is that Ryu did signify a turning point in some ways for the front office, maybe for the fan base, um, and certainly for a lot of people in that clubhouse organizationally. When you're talking about what it meant to go out there at that point in time, coming off a down year in 2019, not just a down year, a bad year in 2019 for the Blue Jays. They want to show they're legitimate on the field and they want to show that they're legitimate as spenders. And they did that. And this was acquiring a top flight free agent arm, someone who had been a Cy Young runner up the previous season, a Scott Boris client, not insignificant considering this is an agent who is easily the game's most prominent and someone who had said the Jays had the blue flu pretty recently before that Ryu deal. So this really represented a tone shift for the team from that standpoint, um, where you were able to go out and get a Yusei Kikuchi later and, and lock in Matt Chapman for two years later with that same agent. Now, I'm not saying that you pay $80 million for the right to grease the wheels with a certain powerful agent. That is not what I'm saying. But I do think that there's something to be said for what that deal represented as a turning point objectively a bad deal for the Toronto Blue Jays. <laughs> you just can't argue it. $16 million per win, Ben. Like you laid it out. Objectively a poor signing. If you're looking for dollars per war, that's inefficient. The Blue Jays end up getting 315 innings from Hunjin Ryu over four seasons. And yes, admittedly, one of those seasons was the COVID year. So like, who knows what would have happened if there was um, you know, four more months to that season. But as long as you open yourself up to the possibility of like Hunjin Ryu throwing like 130 good innings over those four months, you got to open yourself up to the possibility of him throwing a whole bunch of poor innings as well and perhaps putting more tax on his arm and perhaps like, you know, suffering the UCL injury even earlier than he did or requiring the operation even earlier than he did. Um and like personally, like I've just I've never bought the argument of like this was the Blue Jays signaling something or like this had some sort of like uh, meaning to them in the greater baseball context, because like a year later, they signed George Springer for six years and one hundred and fifty million dollars. Did that mm -hmm. not say something? Did did Kevin Gosman for five years and uh, one ten not say something? Right? Did uh, extending Jose Barrios for seven years, one hundred and thirty, not say something? Like there's, you know, there's there's other ways to sort of announce that you're serious. Um, and the other thing that we know is that Hunjin Ryu was not like the Blue Jays' prime target that winter. You know that as well as I do. That's not like the guy that they wanted. They wanted Garrett Cole, right. and they couldn't get a seat at the table with Garrett Cole. Um, I imagine they wanted Zach Wheeler. They should have wanted Zach Wheeler. <laughs> he was a great signing that offseason. So look, like Hunjin Ryu had a great impact on the culture of the Blue Jays and on their clubhouse. Um, you can't find a teammate to say a bad word about him. Everybody enjoyed having him around. Great affable personality. You know, I think that a lot of Blue Jays young pitchers like learned a lot from the way that he went about his business and yeah. the work 
um, some of the training methodologies that he utilized and just who he was as a professional. And so I think there is some value there, right, that you can't necessarily put a number on. But if we are just being cold, hard, objective baseball people, this was not a successful signing for the Toronto Jays. <laughs> okay. So, okay, I got a couple couple thoughts to bounce off of you here, okay? So, because I agree, you know, it's a gradual thing, but the Jays in that 2020 season, they were 32 and 28, and it was a weird year. But they technically made the playoffs that year, and if they didn't have Ryu, they might not have made the playoffs that year. And then at that point, you're trying to pitch a George Springer, you're trying to pitch a Marcus Simeon, two guys who had a huge impact on on that season that followed and kept them in contention in 2021, you know, are you able to land those guys? If you're not saying to them, hey, we were just in the playoffs, we are on the rise, as opposed to saying, hey, we were 27 and 33, we think we can creep in next year. It's different because they actually did it in that 2020 season, partly because Ryu was there. So, you know, as I look at this, I agree that it's not an efficient signing, but I think if you were to ask the Blue Jays, would you, and, and let me ask you this, if you could go back in time and undo, hit Control Z, Command Z on the Hyunjin Ryu signing, would you do it? Because on Tanner Roark, I would in a heartbeat. It just wasn't worth it. You know, that's that to me is unilaterally, it just wasn't worth it. Diesel was not worth the the, <laughs> the hype. Um, but with Ryu, I, if I'm the Jays, I wouldn't go back and undo it. I would leave it. I would let it play out. I'd have to know more about their alternatives at the time. Um, right. If it was like Ryu or Kyle Gibson and uh, Jake Odorizzi, yeah, okay, yeah, take Ryu, right? But yeah. I don't know. Was there what were their other opportunities? Like, what was the opportunity cost of it? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing is with like selling a Springer, selling a Simeon. Um, I think that the thing that sold George Springer uh, was six years and one hundred and fifty million. Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that everyone else was selling him on five and one twenty five. Like But Simeon I, then? I mean, I think Simeon went to the highest bidder. I, I don't think Simeon had a better offer out there. Yeah. He, like that to him, he was like, Yeah, one year and what was it, nineteen mil, something along those 20? lines. Twenty? Yeah, right. Like yeah. it was a really good competitive offer for a guy coming off of a really down season. Um, I think I have a hard time believing knowing like Marcus, and like knowing how, you know, his involvement with the union and knowing like how intelligent he is about these things, how thoughtful he is about these things. I would be surprised if he had a bigger offer elsewhere that he turned down. Money talks, money talks for sure. At the same time, I, I think that there's some value and you could even say, okay, even if you, even if you say, okay, those guys would have signed regardless. So so 2021 and beyond would have been unchanged. How about in 2020, you still provide some level of playoff experience to the young guys on that team. And that definitely wouldn't have happened without Ryu. Uh, so now, has it benefited them since? Not <laughs> yeah, really. That's where I was you know, going. Yeah. Uh, probably some of our <laughs> listeners are thinking, yeah, pretty sure Vlad Jr. could have got picked off second in Minnesota with or, we, yeah. with or without Hunjin mm-hmm. Ryu's help. And that's true. But... Who knows, you know, like I think that each playoff game, you can't replicate those environments easily. Each playoff game matters. It does help. I I, I do think that helps. And so, again, as I look at the Ryu deal, and it's an interesting discussion, I think they're, you know, your your argument is very reasonable. But as I look at it, I still wouldn't go back and undo it. Because the other thing is, what else were you spending the money on at that time? You had a cheap core. You didn't, you weren't up against the CBT. You had the money to spend. Spend it. 
Yeah, absolutely. That would be, uh, I would like to know what the opportunity cost was. And if there wasn't, you know, anything that would have been meaningful, then yeah, absolutely. Like do it again. Um, it's one of those sliding doors things, man. It's one of those things we'll probably never know the, the full answer to, but obviously best of luck to Hanjin, uh, as he wraps up his career, we assume, I don't know, maybe he's going to keep pitching into his mid forties, <laughs> late forties. Uh, we assume, a safe assumption. assume this is, uh, the, the final deal of his as a, as a professional, um, any other like Jay's notes that you wanted to get to as we, uh, you know, creep up towards, uh, the first actual game of grapefruit league play. Here's one that I'll throw out there. So, you know, last year we're talking about a team that was really good at run prevention. Huge part of that was pitching. Big part of that was defense, whether it was Kiermaier, Varsho, whether it was Kirk with the the receiving of low strikes or Chapman at third base at times. This was a very, very strong defensive team. Kevin Biggio as a utility player was incredible down the stretch. And Bobachet improved um, defensively and had some some really, really good moments uh, down the stretch, especially playing shortstop. So they had their moments. George Springer made some great catches last year. Stays with a fastball, line to right. Springer makes the catch. What an unbelievable game George Springer is having. Keep it going, George. A couple of red stars. This you know, that supported a uh, pitching staff that was really, really effective and helped the Jays keep runs off the board. And I just wonder... As the Blue Jays proceed here into 2024, we talk a lot about the pitching and there is some risk with the pitching staff and can they repeat it? But in my mind, I also wonder if the defense can repeat it because some of those guys are a year older. Um, You know, it's just, it's tough to repeat a really good defensive season like that. And so I wonder, I'll I'll ask about this once I get down to to Florida, I wonder what that's going to look like and how they can proactively find ways to make sure that they are as good defensively this year as they were last year. Yeah, it's certainly going to be tough in your roster construction with Daniel Vogelbach on <laughs> the bench. Uh, and, you know, David Schneider regularly playing left field or, you know, Isaiah Kanerfleffa having to run out there. with. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's not my roster. I'm not making the moves. <laughs> I'm just talking about them. Um, yeah, I think that you, you can expect that Bo Bichette should be steady. Like, I think he proved something as a shortstop last year. I think he actually found something defensively that he'd been searching for for a long time. So I think it's reasonable to, like, expect him to remain steady at, like, a, you know, very important up-the-middle position. Um, I think behind the plate, you feel good with, like, Kirk's framing and, and blocking, um, you know, with with Danny Jansen's, like, handling of a, of a pitching staff. Um, you know, I think you feel good about your catchers defensively obviously you feel good in center field whether it's Kiermaier or Varsho and you know having like Kiermaier center Varsho left is elite um as good as it gets we'll see like just you know what Springer's season looks like you know there's just like so much variance there um after the season that we just saw um and you know maybe he doesn't play quite as much in the field this year as he did last year maybe there's some more DH days mixed in there like just some more things to kind of keep him fresh and as productive as possible at the plate but huge question marks at third base at second base at first base honestly where Vladimir Guerrero Jr. like was not great defensively last season so like I think you're right to point that out like that you know it's a lot of people are just kind of assuming that the defense is going to be as sound again this year as it was last year and I think it's fair to challenge that assumption and to actually wonder if like there is some regression 
coming for this group and how that could then trickle down um, and impact a pitching staff that really relied on its defense last year. Yeah, exactly. That's something that the Jays, I think it's a good time for them to be mindful of that right now. And it is, it's tough to repeat at the level that Kevin Kiermaier and Varsho played last year. Like that's some of the best outfield defense I've ever seen watching baseball on a regular basis. I certainly wouldn't expect they would be quite at that level, um, but you want to get as close as you possibly can. So that's something I'll be keeping an eye on. What about you? Anything that you're kind of keeping a watch out for as, as things ramp up down in, in Florida? Um, definitely like some young players I'm interested to see at camp. Like I really want to see Elvis Martinez's swing decisions, which I know is like a just weird granular thing to say, but like there's just no questioning the guy's power. Like it's yeah. special, it's different, it's uncommon. Um, like the real difference maker for him is going to be what he swings at and what he doesn't and what his approach is going to be at the plate. And by all accounts and all reports, um, he made some serious strides with that last year. And this is, you know, the selectivity and uh, the ability to kind of wait for his mistake, wait for his home run, which is thrown and not hit. Uh, has gotten better with time. So like I'm just kind of interested to see um, you know how the how the discipline, how the strike zone management looks for him. Similar with Addison Barger. Like, you know, how how is his approach working? Like his just standing on top of the plate, challenging pitchers to, you know, come into him, huge leg kick. Like, how is that playing? Are there any adjustments to be made there? Just like what's his approach look like? What could he be at the big league level? Um, because as we said last last week, like the Blue Jays are going to need this year's Davis Schneider to come from somewhere. And whether that's one of those guys I mentioned, whether that's an Alan Rodin or a Damiano Palmegiani or somebody that we haven't even mentioned yet, um, it's going to have to come because the Blue Jays, uh, you know, did not exactly add um, impact offensively this offseason. So I, I am interested just to see like how some of the young players not necessarily like perform in spring training because they really don't put anything on spring training stats, but how they kind of process in spring training and how they look at the plate and then how they kind of work through their their plate appearances and and oppose pitchers. So many little adjustments, right? I was even thinking that as uh, as we saw the first kind of clips and, and footage of Uriel Rodriguez and just kind of considering how many adjustments on and off the field it is for the players who are in big league camp for the first time or having an extended chance um, in big league camp for the first time. It's a lot. And that's why it's so impressive that David Schneider did what he did last year is because he wasn't even given that opportunity. He still was able to prove between the lines that he belonged at the highest level. But yeah, it's it's a lot for these players to to sort of adjust to. And and of course, the biggest tests come in in those moments when you're, when you're pitching or hitting or fielding against some of the very best. But yeah, I think Arelvis, super interesting. You mentioned Alan Roden. I think that just based off the numbers and profile that you look at from a guy last year who walked more than he struck out and stole some bases and hit for a high average, like this is pretty interesting. It's it's getting it's getting to a point now that he's 24 years old where you start to look at him as someone who very well could play in the majors this year. So that's another guy that I'll be keeping an eye on. Yeah, Elvis is kind of like a different story, but you can put like Rodin and Palmegiani and Schneider like all kind of into that same bucket of hitter profile that the Blue Jays have seemed to target in the draft. 
recently, yeah. which is kind of like the low strikeout, strong, like strike zone management, good swing decision guys, guys who will, you know, work their walks, right? Like good walk to strikeout ratios, um, but maybe not guys that showed up with like a ton of pop, you know, or guys that came to the Blue Jays with, uh, you know, really big power swings. Because I think that the Blue Jays organizationally feel like it's easier to develop power than it is to develop strike zone management and plate discipline. So I feel yeah. like in the draft, they've targeted a lot of guys who come with like solid approaches and good pitch recognition and good patience and, you know, ideas for how to formulate a plan at the plate. And then they've gotten them on the like strength and conditioning and nutrition plans that like David Schneider got on to add all that weight and become like the little uh, house that he is now. And they've tried to like add some power for these guys and turn them into these dudes who can like really turn on pitches on the inner half and like pull fly balls out of the yard. That's what you hear about Paul Negiani is that he's got that Davis Schneider approach where like anything inner half, like he can hit some absolute ropes to the pull side and like hit some of those line drive homers over the green monster that you saw, um, you know, from Davis Schneider last year so uh you know it's it'll be just kind of interesting to see like how that development is going like those are guys who are trying to kind of develop the power and develop the contact quality whereas for Irelvis, it's more so like he's got the contact quality he's got the power it's developing the strike zone management and, and the discipline and the swing decisions yeah exactly so it'll be yeah it'll be fun to watch uh, as they try to maybe take a little bit from the other group and get into the to the point that you're a fully formed, somewhat well-rounded major league hitter. Although, of course, there's room for guys who who still strike out and room for guys in the majors who don't make the best swing decisions, honestly. I mean, it's not what you're hoping for, but sometimes if the power is that good and they can play defense, then you're kind of okay if they're like a Jose Siri. He's a major leaguer, and it's not as though he's someone who's going to ever walk more than he strikes out, but he can do other things, and that's what the Jays need to start uncovering here with these players. Sometimes your hobby bias and your career is an absolute roller coaster. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> um, that's going to be it for us. I uh, want to thank you for listening. want to thank our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. He's Ben Nicholson Smith. I'm Arden Zwelling. Talk to you next week on At the Letters.